Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to bring this guest to you today, my friend Eric Hernandez. Him and I first met at CIA, which is Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, uh, a few years ago. And I I really enjoyed a lot of the things that he had to put forth, um, especially, particularly, uh, his thoughts on philosophy. Uh, I really like the way that Eric puts things. And I've kind of seen a few of his videos in the past before that I found very helpful. Um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in particular today, I'm having you on about something that you know a lot about. This is an area where you are well-versed, you've researched this a lot, and that is the existence of the soul. So you have a whole slideshow for this. Um, I take it that you you do this a lot, like you you give presentations about the soul quite often. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to think it's the soul of my ministry, if you will. But... <laughs> That was good. That was good. Um, Sarah warned me about your dad jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, and by the way, he's actually he's even interviewed a few times, and you have a video on your channel that you did with uh, theology on tap uh, with Sarah and Evan, which both are friends of mine. I'm actually going to go on their channel on their podcast next month to talk about uh, new age and things like that. So if you guys want to check out that interview, I will also leave it in the description below to check out as well as Eric's YouTube channel. He talks about a lot of this stuff. You do a lot of debates on this as well. Um, you've done debates on the existence of the soul with a few atheists, correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, an atheist philosopher, um, you know, even, uh, in one instance where it was just a conversation that I was having with someone who wasn't familiar with this, but, um, yeah, different things like that, uh, different talks, even things which we might touch on later, like animal souls and things of that nature. Yeah, which I'm sure my audience would, or they're very curious about. And whether we think it or not, I think this is something we do think about. Um, and maybe a lot of us just don't know how to research it or how to ask these questions. So that's one reason why I'm having you on today. Now, before we get started into your your very impressive looking slideshow, I saw it before we got started. How did you get into this? What's your story uh, about this? Why did this become your passion topic? Yeah, so so good question. Um Freshman year of college, to try and be brief, I took my first philosophy class, um, not really knowing what philosophy was. I just thought I was making stuff up and sharing your opinion. And I thought, well, I could do this in my sleep. So I'm going to take this class so it could be a class I could maybe skip, you know. Um, wow. Really enjoyed it, though. Uh, later found out my professor was an atheist. Um, and without going into too many details, uh, I almost like I pretty much fell in love with philosophy, just thinking in general and, and rules mm -hmm. of thinking. And so I wanted to take another class. And everyone of my peers warned me, if you're going to take another class, whatever you do, don't take Professor Pena's class because he's going to try to make you lose your faith. He's antagonistic. That's going to be his goal. And my thought was, well, where do I sign up? Um, you know, not because I wanted to lose my faith, but uh, I did have questions. And, you know, uh, I, I always believed that if something's true, I shouldn't be afraid to learn it. And it's going mm -hmm. to be grounded in God. Amen. Um, so I knew that if Christianity were true, I need to, to know why. But if it were false, then I'd like to know why as well. And perhaps mm -hmm. this was a guy for the job. So this was a pivotal moment for me in my in my life and ministry, really, where he walks into class one day <clears throat> and he pretends to hold up this antidepressant pill. And he says, religion wants us to believe in something like a soul. And it's because of this that we can have hope in an afterlife and seeing our family and friends that have passed away before us. But he says, however, according to Christianity, uh, your thoughts, your emotions, your sensations, your beliefs are also immaterial and they're supposed to be contained within your alleged immaterial soul. But how can this be? Because he said, if I took this antidepressant pill, which is physical, it actually has the power to change and affect these alleged immaterial states of my soul. 
Um, but how do we explain something like that? Because every time we look at the brain, all we see are neurons firing. Every time a scientist looks at the body, all he finds are the base elements of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Uh, but we've never found anything like a soul. How can that be? And he said, well, the answer is simple. The answer is that there is no soul. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. There is no afterlife. You're just a physical brain and body, a meat machine. And we need to learn to live with this fact, get on with our lives and stop believing in these fanciful, foolish fairy tales. And it was pretty much after that class dismissed. Um, now, what troubled me was up to this point in my life, I'd heard a lot of complaints against Christianity. But that's all they were were complaints. You know, if, if I don't like something that God did in the Bible, it doesn't it wouldn't mean God didn't exist or Christianity wasn't true. Mm -hmm. This, however, was was different because when you read First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection. And to paraphrase, he essentially says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christianity is false in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Well, I would argue that there's this teaching in the Bible about that you are a, a body and soul and that what is being resurrected is, yes, something physical, but you are the thing that that is um, animating that body. It is you. You are a soul. And so if there's no soul, then how can I be resurrected? How can there be a re such thing as a resurrection? Hmm. And so I came to the conclusion that given what Paul's saying, if there's no soul, well, then in principle, there can be no resurrection. And by the same token, if there's no resurrection, Christianity would be false. So I was in an awkward position here because um, I thought everyone believed in the soul and I had never met anyone that didn't much less heard an argument against it. So I could either ignore it and sweep it under the rug or roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty with some metaphysics. And I did the latter. And that's kind of what exposed me to really a lot more philosophy and, and apologetics and heard about guys like uh, J.P. Moreland, who's an expert on the soul, learned a lot from him and mm. just really kind of dove in. And and here we are today. Yeah, I love J.P. Moreland. I, uh, I noticed that you like him a lot too. Now, uh, you mentioned metaphysics. Now, a lot of my audience are ex new agers. And I know immediately they are thinking one definition of that. That's not what you mean. Um, you're talking about a philosophical definition for uh, just a brief minute. Can you define what you mean by uh, looking into metaphysics? Yeah. Um, it's funny you say that because, you know, I'm, I'm on the opposite end of, mm -hmm. of the stick because I remember when I was getting into this stuff, <laughs> yes, you know, I think yeah. I was on Instagram, right. Yeah. And I was looking up like hashtags of apologetics or philosophy. And then I clicked on the metaphysics hashtag just to see what pop up. And I was looking, I'm like, this isn't metaphysics. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is this? Um, so meta just means beyond, and and it comes from um, really it's it's named. Uh, it's not named by Aristotle, but it was named because of him this way because he hmm. first wrote his book on the physics, hmm. and then he started writing other things that were more philosophical about the physics he had just uh, written a book about and observed. Uh, but he never titled it. So this book came after the physics. And that's literally where the word comes from is meta beyond or after the physics. So hence metaphysics. Um, now, meta does mean beyond. It can also mean transcendent uh, to some extent. But essentially, metaphysics deals with the ultimate nature of reality. So when we talk about properties like, um, for example, if uh, the property of redness, right, I don't go outside. And when I'm driving my car, I don't try to avoid the property of redness. Instead, I avoid uh objects that possess the property of redness and what that shows us is that properties in and of themselves don't float around in the world existing you know in reality they're always possessed by something more basic than themselves so then you have properties and then you have you can have something like a substance which we'll get into later that possesses a property so the substance is literally the thing that stands under to substand the properties that it owns. Um, so that's probably a little bit deeper than we you know needed to go. But you know when you're talking about properties, asked, reality, so, yeah, nature, yeah. Uh, that's essentially metaphysics. Yeah. So um, whenever that comes up again in the video, 
uh, just remember that it's a philosophical definition, not a new age definition. So thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. Yeah. Okay. So um, I only had three basic questions for you that I'm hoping you're going to answer, which I'm sure you will in your, your whole thing about the soul. And I, in that way, I think this interview is going to be a little bit different because it's going to be like a Q and a, so to speak. Uh, but it's more about you kind of having the floor and maybe me asking some follow-up questions on it. But these are the questions that, uh, for everybody to know that I laid out for Eric, that I think would benefit everybody, uh, that, that might be helpful for us to know as, as Christians to, to know, uh, maybe some misconceptions we have about this. And, uh, for fun, I actually wanted him to talk about his beliefs, which I I'm kind of agnostic about. I don't really know what I believe about this at this point about animals having a soul, uh, maybe towards the end. So, uh, that question, but also I wanted you to define the soul. The Cambridge definition of it defines the soul as the spiritual part of a person that some people believe continues to exist in some form after the body has died or in the part of a person that is not physical and experiences deep feelings and emotions. And I would like to see if you agree or disagree with that definition uh, biblically and personally. And then also this one's really important because I, I really want my audience to have a really good grasp on what dichotomy is and trichotomy, uh, dualism, basically. Uh, so we have, a, in other words, a lot of Christians say that we have a body, soul, and a spirit. And I think that that's an error. I actually don't think that that's uh, something that is, is biblical. They, Others say, in other words, others say that soul and spirit are used synonymously in the Bible. And I would like you to explain dichotomy, trichotomy, dualism, uh, what does the Bible teach and which do you hold and why? So these are the types of questions yeah. that I'm going to hand over to you. Uh, and hopefully uh, we can, my audience will have a good understanding of what that means. Mine and me as well. I'm taking notes actually, as you're, as you're talking, I feel like, I feel like this is like a, a kind of a mini seminary class. So I'm going to enjoy this. I feel. So I'm glad you asked about a definition of the soul because uh, one of the first things I get into. So what, what is a soul? Um, so here's the definition we're going to use. The soul is an immaterial substance that possesses consciousness and animates the body. Now, we already talked about uh, the definition of a substance earlier um, because usually at this point, um, I deal a lot with non-believers and they say, wait a minute, substance, you know, how is uh, how can there be an immaterial substance? And they say, you know, you, you can't call a substance immaterial. And the irony is, OK, again, this comes from Aristotle. He's the first one to use this and coin the phrase, and he was mm -hmm. using it in terms of metaphysics. So the irony is not that, oh, substance automatically entails something physical. Well, when you look at the history of it, it was actually first used philosophical. Um, so we'll, we'll get into more on that later. So essentially, these are the two points that we're going to focus on within the definition. Namely, the soul is an immaterial substance, and it is a thing that possesses consciousness. Now, when I give a, a, a presentation to give a case for the soul, I, I'd say you only really need two basic points. The first is that consciousness is not physical, and the second is that I am more than my brain and body. I am a soul. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, at, at this point, some people think, well, let's go to science, and 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 I took some of these slides out, and some we may skip. Mm -hmm. um, the reason science wouldn't be the appropriate tool to answer the question of whether or not the soul exists or to investigate it is because this would be like trying to use a ruler to measure your weight, mm -hmm. right? It's simply the wrong tool for the assessment. Um, suppose. Uh, your neighbor tells you that there's an invisible man in his house and you say, I don't believe you. So I'm going to investigate this claim for myself. <clears throat> so you go to his house and you search, uh, you know, you do some investigation and two hours later you come out and you're upset with your neighbor and you call him a liar. And he says, why are you calling me a liar? And the response is, well, because you told me there's an invisible man in your house. And yet I looked everywhere and I never saw him. 
I, <laughs> I looked in the bathroom. I looked under the under the sink, under the beds. I looked in the kitchen. I looked in every closet, and never once did I visibly see this invisible man. And he looks at you, sort of frustrated, and says, "Well, of course you didn't see him. He's invisible." Mm -hmm. Now, what your neighbor said doesn't prove an invisible man exists, but it does prove that if you wanted to discredit the existence of this invisible man, then you cannot appeal to your sense of visibility to try and argue against something that cannot be seen visibly. It's it's what we call a category fallacy. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, while science is a wonderful tool that studies the physical world, it is limited to only studying the physical world. And the soul, if it exists, is non-physical by definition. A lot of atheists and scientists are materialists. Like, yeah. I don't think that they would have a worldview that would allow for a soul. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's always nuances, but right in, at this, this appeals more to a what's called scientism. I don't know if you, uh, your listeners are familiar with that it was essentially a worldview that it's an epistemic worldview. It's a way of knowing things that mm -hmm. says science is the only way to gain uh, gain or look at truth. Uh, but again, we see this as a category fallacy here. Mm -hmm. um, again, like appealing to your sense of sight to look for an invisible man. It's a wrong tool for the assessment. So what would be the right tool? Well, uh, philosophy, logic, rationality. And this brings us to um, something known as uh, Leibniz's – well, we're going to call it the law of identity. If you want the really big, long phrase to impress your friends, it is <laughs> Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals. Uh, but for short, we're just going to call it Leibniz's law or law of identity. Now, according to this, uh, this is going to be the foundation for the arguments we're going to use on the soul. Um, according to Leibniz's law, um, when we look at uh, uh, any of these arguments, Leibniz's law says – if A is the same thing as B, so you have two things in question, A and B. If A and B are the same thing, then they're identical. In philosophy, identical means literally the same thing as. Mm -hmm. So as an example, let's say Eric Hernandez and your guest right now on the show. Well, I'm using two different references, but I'm referring to only one person because Eric Hernandez and the guest on your show is the same person. So mm -hmm. according to Leibniz's law, if A and B are the same thing, then whatever is true of one is going to be true of the other and vice versa. But in principle, if I can find something true of one that's not true of the other, then given Leibniz's law, they cannot be the same thing by default. Mm -hmm. So in other words, let's say um, you, you walk into a lab and you see two bottles of clear fluid. One is labeled water and the other one is labeled chemical X. But let's say the label for chemical X is ripped off, right? You can't read it. Well, you want to know, are these two the same substance? And you so what you begin to do is look at their properties, right? Uh, they, they're both they both have the property of being a fluid. They're both clear. And based on this, you assume, well, they must be the same substance until you turn over the bottle labeled chemical X. But you didn't know that's what it was. And on the back, there is a label you can read and it says caution flammable. And then you think to yourself, ah, well, I know water's not flammable, which means even if I don't know what chemical X is, at the very least, I know these two things cannot be the same substance. So this is Leibniz's law of identity and how we can use it as a test for identity. So let's go back to what my professor was saying. <clears throat> uh, remember the two points. The first point, consciousness is not physical. If there is no soul, then consciousness is going to have to be, if it exists, because some atheist philosophers, naturalists, will deny consciousness exists. Someone like Daniel Dennett, who says consciousness is just an illusion. The irony is that in order to have illusions, you must first be conscious. So yes. yeah. <laughs> you have to wonder if he was conscious when he said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Um, now, so if consciousness does exist and there is nothing immaterial and there's no soul, mm -hmm. then the mind is going to have to be identical or reducible to something physical like the brain. This is essentially what my professor was trying to argue. Now, if this is correct, then given Leibniz's law of identity, 
whatever is true of the mind must be true of the brain and vice versa because they should be the same thing or are reducible to one or the other. But in principle, if we can find just one, all we need is one thing true of one that's not true of the other or vice versa, then they cannot be the same thing. And it's really easy to do. This is so so fascinating. Okay. So so let's uh, give you a few examples. Uh, There are different states of my mind. Um, there, there are five states of consciousness. Uh, there are thoughts, beliefs, sensations, desires, and volition, or we can call it acts of will. Um, mm-hmm. But let's take a state of like my, my thoughts or my beliefs, right? Uh, my thoughts or beliefs, they can be true or false. So my state of my mind, thoughts or beliefs can be true or false, but no region of my brain is true or false. It doesn't even make sense to ask which neurons firing are true and which neurons firing are false because neurons are a function of the brain and functions can't be true or false. Um, My brain can be in a state that weighs three pounds, but my thought that I'm talking to you right now doesn't weigh three pounds, right? Uh Um, While your listeners may be having heavy thoughts at the moment, they don't need to buy a neck brace after this is over, right? Um, So the brain can be seven inches long, but the smell of a rose or the taste of a banana, which is in my mind, is not seven inches long. Now, we can go through many more examples, but the point is simply this. If all the properties of my brain are physical and all the properties of my mind are not physical, then it follows that consciousness, if it exists, it cannot be identical or reducible to the physical. Hence, the first point, consciousness is not physical. So so let's go to the now the, the second point. So now we know that consciousness is not physical. And then the question is, okay, now, but what possesses consciousness? What is the thing that owns it? Because we talked earlier about metaphysics. Uh, properties don't just exist in the world. You know, and they're not just instantiated floating around. They're always possessed or grounded in something. Mm-hmm. Well, I know at least one thing is conscious, and that is me, right? Even Rene Descartes, that was, you know, part of his whole case that I can be certain I exist because to doubt my very existence would imply that I'm conscious. And if I'm thinking, then I must exist, even if my thoughts are about doubting my own existence. Mm-hmm. So I exist. So consciousness is not physical, and I know I am conscious. But now the question is, what kind of thing am I? So here's where we go to the second point. Now, what we're going to talk about now is substance dualism, and we could, for a simple definition, we could say that we can define substance dualism as a view that I am a soul that has a brain and body. Now, notice the distinction here. Um, I am a soul. We could say, given what we've learned so far, I am identical to the soul, right? So technically speaking, I have a body, but I don't, quote, have a soul. But rather, I am a soul. A body without a soul would be a corpse. Um, now, I have to be really honest with uh, your viewers here because I've actually recently changed my position on this. A few years ago, I was um, looking for a car, and I got myself a Kia Soul, uh, and it's in my uh, driveway. So I do have a soul. Um, <laughs> and I bought that car just so I could make this joke, and it's a very rich You punch, even made a slide, car. Eric. Yes. <laughs> I have to milk every penny for this. I mean, you know, I paid real money for this joke. So That's amazing. Um, I was soul searching, if you will. Uh, okay, so so we can put it this way. So if I am identical to the soul and the soul is immaterial, well, then it would follow just by a logical deduction that I am immaterial. By contrast, if the brain and body are something physical, well, then it would follow that I cannot be identical nor reducible to a brain and body. Hence, I must be something more, namely a soul. So let's go through just a couple arguments for this. So for the second point, I'm more than a brain and body. <clears throat> Now, a little bit more terminology, um, using the law of identity. If let's suppose for the sake of argument that what's called physicalism is true. Physicalism is the idea that human beings are identical and reducible to purely physical objects. So let's just but, would that be similar or the same as a materialist or naturalist or is that the same thing? Uh, 
Yeah, close. It just depends okay. who you're talking to in the context. But uh, okay. physicalism is is a term that's typically reserved within the discussions of philosophy of mind that's referring to uh, it's basically naturalism, uh, philosophical okay. naturalism applied to human beings. Right. Because, okay, okay. I mean, you have these some nuanced views where someone might be a, a, quote, naturalist and a physicalist that there is no soul, but they'll believe that there are you know, immaterial objects or whatever. So okay, physicalism is, yeah, referring okay. uh, specifically to the person um, just being something physical. Perfect. Now, okay. let's suppose physicalism is true. <clears throat> if that were the case, then human beings would be identical and reducible to what we would call myriological aggregates. But we're just <laughs> going to say word. aggregate. We're going to say aggregate for short. So what's an aggregate? Well, it's a collection of separable parts held together in a certain structure. Now, things like watches, cars, or Lego bricks are what we would call aggregates. Why? Because they're a collection of separable parts held together in a certain structure. Um, contrast this with a substance, which is a whole in and of itself. So let, let's briefly break that down by looking at aggregates. The thing about aggregates is that their existence and identity is ontologically dependent on the parts. What does that mean? That's that's a fancy way of saying um, they need the parts to exist before these uh, aggregates can exist. So before a watch can exist, you need the existence of springs and, and, and whatnot in the face and all that. So this tells us something interesting metaphysically speaking about aggregates. Take a tricycle. A tricycle by definition is what it is because it has three wells. So hence the existence of a tricycle is ontologically dependent on the existence of its parts for its identity and existence. Now, suppose we were to move just one wheel from a tricycle. Well, then metaphysically speaking, we could say in a real sense that a tricycle has ceased to exist and a bicycle has come into existence. And hence, this shows us that for aggregates, their existence and identity necessarily depend on the existence and identity of their parts. Now, Take a car now, for example. Um, I don't know if your viewers or if, you, if you've uh, seen the Marvel show WandaVision. Have you seen that? Oh, I have not. No, but I've heard of okay. it. Yeah, well, good. That means you're a Christian and you only watch Christian things. And that's good. <laughs> it was a trick question. I'm joking. <clears throat> I, I watched it. So at the end of that, um, and it's been out for a long time. So yeah. spoiler warning, I guess. Um, at the end of it, there are two visions. Um, and they have this discussion about something known as the ship of Theseus, which is exactly what I'm about to talk about here, just using a car as an example. And it, it refers to identity through change and part replacement. Mm -hmm. So take this car. If I were to replace the tires on this car, we can ask the question, is it the same car? Now, most people say, yeah, it's the same car. And I say, okay, well, here's another question. Now, suppose I replace every single piece of this car, every nut and bolt, every windshield, every, every everything, the bumper, all of it, right? And it gave it a nice little shine. Now, the question is, is it the same car? Well, before you answer that question, suppose I took the replace parts. And then I put those back together. Well, now we have two cars. And now the question becomes, which of these two is the original, if any? Now, hmm. I th I'd say regardless of your answer, at least one thing I'd say is certain, that they both cannot be the original, if either one is. And what this shows us is simply that for aggregates, they do not maintain identity through change in part replacement. So the moment you begin to replace things or change its parts when it comes to aggregates, uh, again, a collection of separable parts held together in a structure, you, you change the thing that it is. It, is it, it does not retain its sameness through change and part replacement. Now, with this in mind, here's the first argument we'll go into, known as the argument from identity through change. Okay. So um, premise one, uh, this is known as what's called a dis 
Conjunctive syllogism is a big word. It's it's a it's a I it's either A or B, and then you go through the argument to see which one it is. Just so my viewers know, a syllogism is something used in logic. So this is how um, you know, like if you read uh, anything in philosophy, a lot of philosophers will use syllogisms to make their points. And if it's a valid point or invalid point, your first and second premise have to make sense for your conclusion to follow. Just to define that a little bit further for for everybody. A lot of people may not recognize what a syllogism is. Okay, yeah, great. And, and you can think of it like uh, it's math and philosophy put together, really. Yes, uh, yeah. The, I always thought of yeah. logic, philosophy um, as as mm-hmm. math. For, like It's yeah. like a math for immaterial logic. Like that's exactly, that's interesting that you said that because that's exactly how I, yeah. I felt like I was always doing a math problem whenever, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> when my logic professor is like, here, is this a valid or invalid argument uh, in logic? Right, and right. I, it literally is like that. They have to follow certain rules for it to follow. So. Yeah. Okay. And math is a is a branch of philosophy, and um and the reason we use syllogisms is because it's it's a really neat way to verify whether an argument is valid or sound or sound because yeah. and we won't go into all all those no. details, but basically it's fascinating you know, though. <laughs> yes, it's it's you're using deductive logic to reach a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way, if someone disagrees, they can pinpoint which premise they disagree with, and that's it. It kind of helps keep things on track. So yeah. premise one: I'm either a purely physical object, an aggregate, or an immaterial soul. Now. Um, we go to premise two. If I am a purely physical object, then I do not retain identity through change. Now, suppose which which of these two which of these two is it going to be? Well, suppose for example, I committed a crime ten years ago. Right? Let's say ten years ago uh, I committed this crime, but they just now find the evidence to convict me. Um, so I get a knock on my door and there's a detective and he comes to my door and says, uh, you know, we're going to have to take you in. We just found the evidence to convict you. And I say, wait a minute. I say, Jay, that was seven to 10 years ago. And we know that according to science, your body replaces virtually every cell, um, every seven to 10 years. So the guy that you're looking for is actually a different composition of parts and 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 properties go find that person because it wasn't me but good luck because this guy no longer exists and of course he's going to look at me and say no i'm sorry eric we're gonna have to take you in um so i think what this shows us is that i do maintain identity through change and part replacement and therefore i cannot be a purely physical object therefore i am a soul let let's go on now to ju- we'll do just one more mm-hmm. um the indivisibility of personhood uh so Again, premise one, same same premise as a previous. I'm either a purely physical object or an immaterial soul. Now, purely physical objects can be divided and exist in various percentages or degrees. What do I mean by that? So let's break this down. Things like um, degraded properties would be something like uh, uh, being soft or hard. These are properties that can be divided and exist in various percentages or degrees. So Something soft can be softer, something hard can be harder, you know, louder, quieter. These are properties that can fluctuate and change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, contrast that with non-degree properties, which cannot be divided, cannot exist in percentages or degrees. Uh, think of the property of being even. They're, they're an all or nothing kind of thing. So take the property of being even. The number two and the number six are both, both possess a property of being even, but it would make no sense to say that the number six is, quote, more even than the number two. Why? Because evenness is a non-degree property. It's an all-or-nothing kind of thing. Something is either even or it is not even. There is no in-between. You are human beings are persons, right? I possess a property of personhood. But the question mm-hmm. is, is personhood degreed or non-degreed? Well, it depends on whether or not you're identical or reducible to something physical. So take a, a table, for example. <clears throat> I could cut a table in half 
burn one half, and it would make sense to say I have 50% of a table. Mm-hmm. But God forbid, suppose someone got in an accident mm-hmm. and their arms and legs were removed, right? They were they were 50% of a body, but it would not make sense to say that they are 50% persons. In other words, it makes sense to say I have 50% of a body, but it doesn't make sense to say I am fit, therefore 50% of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, some atheists may say, well, it's the brain. The brain is what counts, right? That That's where your identity um, um, is grounded, and that's where your personhood comes from. Well, Consider, uh, um, you know, some rare conditions such as Dandy Walker syndrome or Allen's symphalic disease mm-hmm. and even cases in brain operations where they actually have to remove a portion of a person's brain. So let's say a person only has 70 percent of a brain. It would make sense to say they have 70 percent of a brain, but it wouldn't make sense to say that they are only 70 percent persons. Again, they may lose functioning, but if I am neither identical nor reducible to something physical, then it follows that I cannot be divided or exist in various percentages or degrees. Why? Because I'm an all-or-nothing kind of thing. And mm. given Leibniz's law of identity, well, then it follows I'm not a purely physical object. Therefore, I am a soul. And I'll go ahead and stop it there because I know that was a lot. And yeah. um, I think that I think you guys can handle this. Yeah, I think you guys, you know, can follow all this because that was a very uh, ABCD way, in a way, to to describe and explain why it's logically philosophically reasonable to believe we have a soul. You brought up the whole idea of, of showing that there, if there is no soul, there is no resurrection, which I find fascinating. If you can go into the biblical argument for the soul, obviously uh, we, the Bible teaches that we're more than just a body. I think that's obvious. However, I think where it gets dicey is when people try to define what that means. So I talked before about, you know, body and soul, body, soul, and spirit. I would love to get your thoughts on that. And what are the consequences of each of those views? Yeah. So, so good, good, great questions. Um, there's a really good book uh, by, I believe it's John Cooper. It's body, soul, and life everlasting. And he Wait, goes John Cooper. The- <laughs> Which body, one? soul, and life everlasting. Uh, John W. Cooper. Let me Got just... it. Okay. That doesn't sound like <laughs> John Cooper from Skillet. I'm like, I don't think he. Oh. I don't think he... <laughs> um, body, uh, soul, it... and spirit. What was it called? Body, soul, and life everlasting. Okay. Body, soul, and it is, yes, by John W. Cooper. What, one thing as a preface to say is that there are some things within scripture that are not necessarily presented and defended, but presupposed, right? Okay. Um. So, for example, um, another way to put this philosophically is that the Bible can be underdeterminative on some things, which doesn't mean the Bible doesn't uh, uh, hold to a certain uh, view, but rather it's not trying to teach it because everybody would have believed this, right? Um, so, like, you're not going to find uh, whether or not, um, you know, you're not going to find uh, whether or not truth exists in the Bible because it's more of a philosophical question. Instead, you're going to find the Bible presupposing truth exists and all the readers know truth exists and just start from that assumption. Um, okay. so there's no epistemic defense of whether or not truth exists in the Bible. It's presupposed. There was no need for that. Um, I think something like the soul is similar. Um, so we're, so how can we make a case given that? Well, what we do is see what the Bible's um, assuming beforehand, what it's teaching, what it's showing. So for example, <clears throat> uh, going back to dualism, right? Um, okay. Sumpson's dualism we defined as I am a soul with a body. Uh, now, some people it, it can be hashed out this way: uh, dualism simply means twoism. So it is the idea that there are two aspects to what I am: something Im- an immaterial substance, my soul, and then something physical, uh, the body. 
So there's two things at play here. And which one am I? Well, I'm the soul, the immaterial substance. Well, uh, you find things consistent with this in scripture. And I would even say presuppose you find that God put the breath of life in in uh, what he made from the dust. So you find two things at play here. You find something physical, and then you find his breath. Now, someone might say, well, breath is physical. Well, they, they would use the word um, uh, pneuma or, or ruach um, yeah. or nefesh. Uh, these, those would be the Hebrew words uh, that can be used for uh, things like wind or breath, but it's referring to something immature depending on the context, of course. So you have two things. You have God putting something into this, something physical in order to create Adam, and it says an Adam became a living being. Um, on top of that, you have uh, David, you know, in Psalms talking about the dead in Sheol. Uh, you have this notion of Abraham's bosom. Uh -huh. You have this idea of, um, you know, e even if this is, was just a parable, a story, the principle behind it where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, where people are existing consciously after death. Um, their bodies have may have been decayed and gone, but they're still existing. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus on the cross, you, you, so you talked about soul sleep, these kind of all relate so let me I, I may jump around depending on who you're talking to it's essentially the notion that there's some type of unconscious existence mm -hmm. after you die before the resurrection um that the soul is sleeping if you will uh, well we don't find this in scripture uh we find the opposite assumed within scripture so for example um jesus is on the cross and so the thief on the cross says you know calls him lord and he says uh remember me when you come into your kingdom and he says this day you will be with me in paradise today not, hey, you're going to die, and then you go into some soul sleep, but then in like so many thousands of years, you'll be with me in paradise. He says, no, today. And and, it, and he's talking in, in that present tense, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, again, rich man and Lazarus, there's this conscious existence. Um, even interestingly, so speaking of Christian physicalists, <clears throat> Jesus engaged with what I would call those – at those times, Christian physicalists, the Sadducees, mm -hmm. uh, the Sadducees did yeah. not believe in a resurrection. Good, good point. And on top of on top of not believing in the resurrection, for for those who don't know, there's a difference between Sadducees and Pharisees, right? Um, Pharisees would be more in line with what we believe today: soul, afterlife, intermediate state. Sadducees did not believe in an immaterial soul. They did not believe in uh, angels or spirits. They did not believe in um, an intermediate state. Now, why is that important? Because you have to understand again. This is how we study this stuff by looking at what they would have believed, what they would have understood, uh, Second Temple Judaism. And you see within the Jewish person's eschatology, there was kind of a two-stage eschatology. Mm -hmm. The first stage was after death, there's this intermediate state where you continue existing disembodied and conscious. Um, that alone, I would say, would refute the idea of soul sleep. There is conscious existence. Uh, where do we find this in Scripture? Um, again, it won't, quote, necessarily be taught. It's implied and assumed, and you have to find where that's at. Well, Paul says, uh, he talks about a guy who went to heaven, and he says, whether in the body or out the body, I don't know. So mm -hmm. already the implication is that there is at least the possibility of disembodiedness. Um, you find in the Old Testament where, you know, the witch of Endor, I believe it is, um, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, bring Samuel back up, you know, to talk to him. This, and, and God forbid necromancy, the practice of talking to the dead. Um, then you see Samuel come up. You see in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come up. Um, these guys have long been dead. Going back to the Sadducees um, and, and, and Paul. Paul says, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. And then he starts saying something really fascinating. <clears throat> he talks about uh, this struggle he has of wanting to be with God, with the Lord, but also wanting to help them out. And he's like, you know, I don't know which one I'd rather do more. He goes, I'd love to be with the Lord. He goes, but the problem is if I died right now, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, 
he says this earthly tent will be destroyed, but I don't want to be in a state of nakedness. I don't want to be unclothed. Um, what does he mean? He means a state of existence where you are disembodied because when he talks about the tent, he's talking about the body. So he talks about the earthly tent mm -hmm. and he says, we're going to take off this earthly tent and at the resurrection, we're putting on this glorified body. But if you were to die right there prior to the final resurrection, well, he's going to be caught in a state of nakedness. Now, I, I think the soul's most natural propensity is to be embodied. But again, throughout scripture and throughout the second temple Judaism, you see this idea of disembodied existence. Mm -hmm. um, Paul is talking about that here, and that's why he just finally says, well, you know what? It doesn't matter because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That mm -hmm. intermediate state without a body um, and to live with Christ, you know, to die is gain. So he's saying, well, whether I live or die doesn't matter to me, you know, and I don't know which one I'd want more. Well, I don't want to die right now because I don't want to be without a body, unclothed, nakedness, you know, so I guess I'll just stay with you guys and help you all out. Um, so he, there's this uh, assumption already embedded within what he's saying. <clears throat> Going back to the Sadducees, this is interesting. When uh, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, they give him this argument against the resurrection. Um mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I love teaching on this aspect because that they – to get a little bit more philosophical, uh, some terminology, because when I teach this, I'm, I'm talking about identifying logical fallacies. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to expose his view in the resurrection as what's called a reductio ad absurdum fallacy. What does that mean? It's it's Latin for reduces to absurdity. I don't know why you know we use Latin in philosophy instead of just English, but whatever. And there it is. So what they're going to do is they're going to say they come up to him. And they say, Jesus, look, you believe in the resurrection. We don't. Um, but there's a problem with your view. And here's a problem. He says, suppose a woman um, gets married and her husband dies. And right. And, and then so she marries, you know, the next guy and he dies. And this happens seven times. <clears throat> now, at the resurrection, they ask. They say, <clears throat> whose whose wife will she be in heaven? Now, here's your problem, Jesus. If you're going to tell me. That she's only going to be married to the first guy in heaven. Well, then now she's an adulterer against all the other six, and that's against the law of Moses. If you tell us that she's going to be married to all seven, well, now she's an adulterer against all the other ones. Well, both of these options are prohibited by the law, by the Torah, and yet this is what you believe, Jesus. So your entire position reduces to absurdity when taken to its logical conclusion. So Jesus, give up your belief in the resurrection. That was their argument. Not bad. Uh, now, Jesus, I, I wish I could spend a lot more time on this but because it's really funny because Sadducees were experts in the law, right? I mean they they memorized this stuff. <laughs> and the first thing Jesus says in response is, well, you're wrong because you just don't know the scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, you're, you're just wrong. You just don't know the scriptures. And then he says, don't you know that in heaven that people are going to be like the angels, neither in marriage, uh, neither given in marriage or be married. They're going to be like the angels. Now, why does he say angels if they don't believe in angels? Well, because he's saying, if you're going to attack my position, you have to be logically consistent within what I believe. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there's marriage in heaven. Hence, your attempt at a reductio ad absurdum is actually a false dichotomy based on a position that doesn't even apply to me. Because what they did in, in these ancient times, when you ask someone a question publicly, it was a way to challenge someone's authority and honor. Uh, you, you were trying to shame them into stealing some of their honor. So mm -hmm. quite literally, a crowd would have broken out. When, as the Sadducees would have approached Jesus with their students, I mean, you almost see like a fight coming together. And yeah, you would have seen a huddle of people. I was just thinking like, just of that. Meeting, the kids meeting out on the schoolyard, uh, you know, the schoolyard. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I say. It's like, yes, yeah. yeah, so like a cafeteria fight about to break out, right? So everybody, yeah. you know, if it were modern day times, people would have put out their phones and yelled out World Star or something, right? <laughs> So, so this is why he's being sarcastic because in the 
he's not just reaching them. He's reaching the audience listening. And we know that a crowd formed because at the end of this, it says, and the crowds were astonished. Where did they come from? Well, they formed as, as this was happening. Yeah. Um, so that, so essentially he's saying, you're trying to get me in this reductio ad absurdum, but it's actually a false dichotomy based on a false presupposition that doesn't apply to mine. So your entire argument collapses. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, that was a rebuttal. Now he's going to give a refutation. He goes, okay, now about the resurrection of the dead. So he's he says, so now that I've destroyed your argument, let's talk about resurrection since you want to bring it up. Now, something interesting happens here because right. he's essentially going to defend the intermediate state in order to defend the, the idea of the resurrection. Because in their mind, in the Jewish mindset, these were, were uh, two things that went together. You're not going to have one without the other. Now, the first thing he says, he's again sarcastic, and this time he adds you know, a little bit more um, snark. He says, have you not read? <laughs> um, again, these guys were experts. They memorized the stuff. And he says, haven't you read? And then he's going to quote a proof text to argue for the resurrection. And he quotes Exodus 3, 6. But here's what the verse says. He says, have you not read what God has said to you? And then here's a verse. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so that has nothing to do with the resurrection. So so he adds to the verse to make his point, says he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Yes, and then okay. the next verse, the next verse says, I'm paraphrasing Eric James translation. Uh, the audience minds were blown. Now, when I first read this, I'm like, my mind's not blown. What happened here? And why quote from Exodus? If if you're going to use an Old Testament text to argue for uh, resurrection and afterlife, intermediate state, there are other better verses to use in Jeremiah and Daniel and Psalms. Why quote Exodus? Well, here's another fun fact about the Sadducees. They they only regarded the Torah as God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Only the Torah, the first five books oh. of the Bible, were authoritative. Everything else, they could care mm-hmm. less. In their mind, that wasn't God's word. That wasn't reliable. That wasn't authoritative. That wasn't inerrant. Okay. So why is Jesus quoting from Exodus? Because that's what they believed. And had mm-hmm. he quoted from Daniel or Isaiah, the whole conversation would have devolved into a debate about biblical reliability. So smart. So. So note what Jesus is doing. He's avoiding debating biblical inerrancy or reliability with people to keep the main thing the main thing. My goodness, if Jesus can do this, why can't we? Right? He's sticking to the main topics. Yeah. I could not even look, I won't even go there. So <laughs> now now let's look at his argument though. What's his argument? <clears throat> and here's another funny thing. Exodus 3:6 was like their John 3:16. Everybody mm. quoted it. They love to quote it, which makes it even funnier when he starts the response by saying at this point, have you not read? <laughs> he's, he's like, guys, isn't this your favorite verse? Like, come on. <laughs> and so here's essentially what he's saying. <clears throat> okay, guys, on your own scriptures, haven't you read? I thought you guys memorized this stuff and you only got five books to work with. Come on. What, what, what's going on? Doesn't your, your scriptures that you love to quote say that God is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But, but here's a problem, guys. On your view... Because it's present tense. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But on your view, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. And given what you believe, they no longer exist because you're just something physical. Hmm. But wait a minute. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died long ago and given your view don't no longer exist, how can he be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they don't exist? However, if he still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the God of the living, not the dead. Well, then it follows Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still exist and be alive and well, even though not physically present on earth, which means even on the verses you affirm, I'm still right and your view's wrong. <laughs> That's awesome. That's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so in all of that, you have this idea of resurrection, intermediate state being uh, um, 
intertwined in, in their eschatology. You have Paul talking about the intermediate state, mm-hmm. thief on the cross. There's conscious existence after death, even if you're disembodied. Lots more we can go into, but this is how we kind of make a case biblically for a lot of this stuff. So, um, all right. So we're talking about, that was great, by the way. I was, uh, I learned a lot from that. That was really interesting, the way that you broke down that passage. Um, I enjoyed that. So before we were talking about dualism and trichotomy, dichotomy, trichotomy, dualism, I'd like you to break those down. What do those mean? Which one do you hold to? Which one's biblical? Also, uh, a lot of people, when they talk about this, they bring up Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12, talking about, uh, the, I think it's uh, the scripture talking about the uh, scripture being sharper than double-edged sword, uh, bone and marrow, going through bone and marrow, uh, soul and spirit, you know, so it makes it seem like there's two separate entities there. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so great question. Um, a, a few things. And so uh, the dualist view, uh, which is what I've been defending, uh, substance dualism more specifically, the idea that I am an I am I am identical to I literally am a soul and I have a body. So the body mm-hmm. is not identical or reducible to me. Now um, that's not a Gnostic view uh, because people some people ask me, well, how do you how do you uh, not become Gnostic by holding to that? And I, my answer is, well, by not becoming a Gnostic, I don't I'm, <laughs> just, just don't, don't do Gnosticism, right? Um, because you know their belief went further in oh well the body's evil and all this stuff. I'm not yeah. saying that. All I'm saying is the you and the body are not identical. You can exist disembodied, given scripture. Um, so there is something immaterial and something physical. Now, that's a dualist view. The trichotomous view, which I held to growing up because that tends to be the popular view amongst a lot of evangelical circles. Um, and if I could say this without sounding condescending, again, I held to it. It's it's popular amongst a lot of lay evangelical circles. Um, because when you start looking at this philosophically and biblically, um, you really don't see a reason for the trichotomous view. And I would say there are even some issues arise. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So, so, so to, to define right. it real simply, just so I want to make sure my audience understands uh, dualism, body, soul, Tri- trichotomy is body, soul, spirit. Right. That that's close. Yes. Depending on who you're talking to, but here's what I was, here's what I would add to that. Okay. Is and on the dualist view, you have two things at work that make up me while embodied. On okay. the trichotomous view, you have three distinct things mm-hmm. that make up you. Yeah. Um, and now, they say because when, they are because God's like a trinity, they say that that makes sense, right? So that's one reason. <laughs> that's one, yeah. So and again, I, this is an area I would even off camera, I would love to chat with you about because um, I, I talk a lot about the Word of Faith movement and to make yourself like God. A lot of them believe that you have to be like a trinity, like a little God, just like he is in order to do what God can do. So there's it's okay. a whole theological mess. But that, is... that aside, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of Christians, if not most, believe that we are body, soul, and spirit. Um, just recently, though, I, I've been learning more about this. There's just one reason why I wanted to have you on, um, because when you said this was your specialty, I'm like, ooh, I'm going to ask Eric about this because I don't think that's correct. Even though it's a popular view, I don't think people understand the consequences of the view. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to add that caveat is for a few reasons. Um, when I say it's so on the trichotomous view, mm-hmm. we can say it's the idea of three substances. From the dualist view, two things. I don't want to call the body a substance, but we can say two mm-hmm. substances. On the trichotomous view, three substances. Okay. Um, now, what some people often... It, at this point, sometimes people interject and say, "Oh, so you don't believe in the spirit?" I didn't say that. Um, I, I think a lot of a lot of the this is just either not knowing the terminology or not knowing how to articulate something. And mm-hmm. and here's why that's relevant: is 
so if you were to, if I were to ask you, um, like this would be a trick question. If I were to ask you, what part of your body tastes? Do you taste or does your tongue taste? Well, the reason it's a trick question because it's not an either or. It's a false dichotomy. The answer is I taste by the way of the faculty of my tongue. So the eye is the whole, the holistic person, and the tongue is a faculty of my body that I, the soul, the self, uses to taste. Well, with this in mind, <clears throat> on the substance dualist view, which one are you? Are you the body or are you the soul? Well, I'm the soul, and the body can is, is something I can be separate from um, in, in principle and in the intermediate state. Now let's look at the trichotomous view. Which one are you? Well, the dualist and trichotomous can agree that we're not the body. Okay, now you have soul and spirit. Which one are you? Because you can't be both. Some people say that the spirit is what you talk to God with, right? Like that's like the holy yeah. part of you. And then your soul would be like your emotions and feelings and things that make you human in that sense. Sure. I think is the so, argument. So here's here's where, right. And here's where the, the um, where it becomes important knowing how to word these things. Okay. Because the way, because I've heard it described that way too. And if it's yeah. described that way, I'd say, well, that's, that's still technically a, a dualist perspective. And here's why. Remember the trick question, you know, what tastes you or your tongue? Well, mm -hmm. the appropriate answer is I taste by way of the faculty of my tongue. Well, I would agree with the trichotomists if they would say it this way, that it is your spirit that is the faculty that allows you to communicate with God. So within your soul, there are various faculties, abilities, if you will, capacities. So my my mind is a faculty of my soul. My spirit is a faculty of my soul. My mind is what allows me that capacity for thought, rationalization. My soul allows me that capacity for communication with God. Now, if I am a soul and the, the spirit is a faculty of my soul, well, then I could ask – then it's the same as the tongue question. What what part what part of you or what is it that speaks to God? Is it your soul or your spirit? Well, the right answer is, on my view, I, the soul, communicate with God by way of the faculty of my spirit. Hmm. Now, contrast this with the trichotomous view. In On their view, these are three distinct substances. So okay. which one is it? So if your spirit is what communicates with God, then who's that soul guy and what's he doing here? And what's his job? <laughs> now, if you say, well, I'm the soul, and hmm. if it's your spirit that communicates with God, well, then again, then when your spirit's praying and you're a soul, then it can't be you that's praying. It's some other third guy in there. Hmm. Who's who's that and why is he praying? So I, I think it leads into some unnecessary problems. And then again, when people say um, – Okay, well, if you only if you're a dualist and you know you don't believe in the spirit, well, yes, I do. I believe it's a faculty of the soul. Um, well, the Bible talks about soul and spirit, just like the verse you quoted. I say yeah. yes and amen, but the Bible also talks about a person's heart, a person's face, a person's this, a person's that. But you wouldn't want to say that you're like a five cotomist, would you? Right, that you're a soul, a spirit, a mind, a face, a heart. A, oh, you know, of course not. That's interesting. I never thought about that. That's a good point. Okay, so on, on, yeah. aha moment. Yeah. So so in addition, so why now? <clears throat> what what the Bible does, and this is where we have to be careful, is is so yes, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeable, but you also have to understand that uh, there are certain times where the Bible is going to emphasize something, a particular faculty of a person to make a point. Hmm. So when it says that David's face fell, it doesn't literally mean that his face came off of his head and fell on the ground. It's it's a way, it's an idiom to connote that you know he was uh, he was disheartened, right? Uh, he was he was disappointed, right? His face fell. Um, so when the Bible's talk, so in English we do this too. It's, I think it's called a cynic note. If I say all hands on deck, uh -huh. I'm not asking for people to literally chop off their hands and throw it onto the deck. I want their whole body. But why do I say all hands on deck? Because by emphasizing hands, 
I am making the implicit point that I want you here because I need your help in some labor, right? Mm -hmm. So I I name hands to emphasize labor. So it's it's a part to whole relationship. I'm specifying a part, even though I really want the whole thing. In the Bible, I think the same thing applies. It depends on what it's talking about. You know, dividing dividing soul and spirit. You know, you know the the heart of a man. It's emphasizing a certain faculty of the person's self, the soul, in order to convey whatever it is that they want to emphasize in the point they're making. Um, so sometimes it can be used interchangeably. Um, yes, the Bible talks about spirit, but it also talks about face, heart, all those other things. But we shouldn't take those as separate substances, right? So aside from I think the the uh, the biblical language of when it talks about the intermediate state, where it talks about um, the uh, Adam putting uh, God putting breath into Adam, uh, 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 nefesh into Adam, ruach, um, and I think just philosophically speaking, you can even throw in Occam's razor, where we don't need mm-hmm. this third thing if it's just a faculty of the soul. And I think the philosophical implications of the problems you get into by adding a third substance like a spirit instead of making it part of the soul. Now, to your uh, the question about the the trichotomous thing and the Trinity. That is such a horrible argument illustration. I would I would encourage people not to use that for a number yeah. of reasons. Yeah, Here, yeah. Here's just one. Yeah. God is tripersonal. We are not. <laughs> you are one person. You are not three persons. So you cannot argue that a trichotomous view is a reflection of God when God is three persons. You are one person. I think it kind of goes to show how people maybe don't understand. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. they don't understand. That's exactly what it shows. Yeah. The, the attributes of God, there's, first of all, you're never really going to understand. The point is not to understand the Trinity. Let me just say it. Like the, that is Yahweh. That is, that is the great I am. Like there's, there's reasons for us not completely understanding that. But I think it goes with what you're saying is that exactly. I think that's exactly the point is that we're trying to understand God um, on a human level and it shows, I think it just tells on us that we kind of don't understand uh, this this wonderful doctrine of the Trinity, but also the attributes that make up Yahweh. Like, who is he? And and how does scripture relay who he is? I mean, you're talking about a God. I mean, you would die in his presence. Anyway, continue with yeah. what you were saying. <laughs> no, yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I would even say, I mean, you know, we can... Depending on how the person's using it, we can understand the concept of the Trinity, right? You know, and, and like you were saying, you're not going to fully, you know, grasp it, you know, but we know philosophically speaking, there's no logical contradiction. Whereas talking about a trichotomous being a type of reflection or one-to-one ratio of a trinity, that's that's where it becomes illogical. So mm-hmm. it, it's in other words, it's a good thing to try to understand these things, but it's a bad thing to use illogical bad philosophy to try to understand these things you know I, i've thinking. often yeah it's a good way yeah i've it. often said i've often said uh bad theology can often be traced back to bad philosophy if you start <laughs> with bad philosophy you're gonna have bad theology you are not tripersonal uh, uh god is and and really the only similarity seems to be well trinity uses three things trichotomous uses three things so let's slam those together and say this and like it's there's really no similarities between um, back to uh, um, what were we saying? The the animal stuff. Yeah, because the Bible's kind of silent on this, so, in my opinion. But uh, I don't know. I think this is just an interesting thing to just randomly ask you because I think that that yeah. is a question that a lot of people might be wondering: is like, do animals have souls? So, so I, so I would say the I don't think the Bible is silent. But here's, but I I know why why people think that. If you read the Bible in Hebrew, it's not silent. Interesting. (laughs) Uh, If you read the Bible in Hebrew, when you look in Genesis and you can look it up in Blue Letter Bible, right? The word nefesh is what's being used for soul. Mm -hmm. And it says, and when it says God made the land animals, it said God made the land nefesh. 
literally the word soul is used when it's talking about an land animals. Interesting. Okay. When it's talking about all these other, so it, it's using the word soul to refer to that. Um, so that that that's one point from a biblical perspective. But again, when you read it in English, you're not reading that right. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot we miss by not knowing the original language. I don't, but I can look it up. Right. That it's we we can do things like that. John Cooper talks a lot more about that stuff. On top of that, let's go to the ph philosophical side. Remember, my two points was. Consciousness is not physical. And then what possesses consciousness? Me, the self, the soul. Mm -hmm. So I would argue if there's if something is conscious, then by default, metaphysically speaking, it would need a soul to ground and possess those states and properties of consciousness. So mm -hmm. here's a simple way to look at it. Are dogs conscious? Yes, they must have a soul, like full stop, because they're conscious and there has to be something possessing that consciousness. Um, on top of that, something interesting is now all not all souls are made equal. People at this point usually ask me, oh, so are, will animals be in heaven? Um, because oh, yeah. the, I guess that would be a logical the, question. Yeah. Well, I can see how. But again, having studied this stuff, I look back because I, I thought this as well. That's it's only the a natural question if you assume that the only thing the soul does is the thing that goes to heaven, which is what most people say when you ask them what is a soul. They'll say, well, it's the thing that goes to heaven as if that's the only thing it does. We've seen it's so much more than that. Nevertheless, I would say that souls are not by nature immortal, but the human soul is by nature immortal only because we bear God's image, and it, it was God's choice to make us immortal, and God's not going to destroy something that bears his image. Mm -hmm. Animals don't bear God's image. Therefore, there's no guarantee in that sense that they, they are going to be immortal and eternal. Now, the Bible does talk about animals in heaven. Um, I, I can go either way about – I do think there will be – animals in heaven it seems the bible seems to say that i just don't know if they're going to be the same animals we had here hmm. nevertheless they have souls because they're conscious the bible does talk about animals in heaven whether or not they'll be the same animals again that we had here like my pets i'm not sure i'm open to it i think a good case can be made for it nevertheless bobby uses the word nefesh for animals they're conscious they have souls and there'll be some in heaven that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm still undecided, but I think that's really interesting to get your point of view on it. And I never uh, thought about that very much before. It's not something I've given too much thought to, though, if I'm honest. I guess I have to be like interested to know why or have a reason to research it. So, um, but yeah, I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad I just threw that at you and be like, hey, sure. what do you think about that? Thank you so much for coming on, putting, I mean, the slideshow, everything. I got a lot out of this and I hope that my audience did as well. Um, is there anything you want to add before we sign off? Um, no, just thank you for having me on. Um, you know, study, look, seek truth, uh, and you'll find God at the end. Yeah. Is, is there a way that my audience might be able to follow you? Do you have social medias that they are able to have access to? Uh, yeah, my my YouTube channel. Um, you can just type my name, Eric Hernandez, on YouTube. Um, I'm on Twitter. I forget my tag name. <laughs> EHM underscore apologetics, I believe. Um, I've I've done some videos on TikTok. I gotta get back on that. Um, my so I don't do YouTube full time. I'm the apologetics lead for Texas Baptist. That's my full time job. Mm -hmm. Social media is more something I do on the side when I can. Um, but yeah, they can they can reach out to me on any of those platforms. Facebook as well. Eric Hernandez Ministries, I think it is. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah. And keep a lookout for the things that you do in Dallas. You do a lot. You do a lot of conferences there. Um, you, you, I think that it's a nice little hub for you to do what you do in ministry. So, um, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I, everything that we talked about, anything that I think would help you further your, uh, education in this topic, I will leave in the description of this video, but let me know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think that we missed something? Uh, let us know in the comments below and Eric, thanks again for coming on.